I have some thoughts for you, and it may be that some of the comments that I plan to make on this piece of paper in just a moment will be some of the most important things that I would try to say to you over the whole two days. So um, get set, and it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant for a few minutes. And then uh, after a little while, I'll ask Gail to come up and join me and uh, say what I forgot to say. We've really appreciated your kindness to us. It's been fun to talk to a lot of you today. Uh, both Gail and I have exclaimed to each other on several different occasions as the day has gone by that you are, are a remarkable crowd of people in the questions you ask. Uh, neither one of us could ever think of any collegiate conference we've gone to where people have asked so many good searching questions and uh, appeared to listen to us, even take notes on the things we say. I mean, I say a lot of things, and, and, and only Gail takes notes on what I say, but you've come along, and it's, it's, it's been wonderful. So thank you very, very much for the way you have received us. Now, this morning, hopefully my computer's working. Uh, the Microsoft people asked me to announce that this is an Apple computer. <laughs> get, my, get my glasses on. Uh, this morning, I, I introduced... This, oh, come on. I can tell I'm in real trouble. Okay. This morning I introduced this verse and offered a bit of context around it as to why the writer would have written it. So let me remind you tonight that these are words written to a group of people who, for the most part, were not staying the course. And so a large part of the book of Hebrews is written... Uh, with the intent to encourage these people, uh, to press them and push them to stick with their commitments, and not to be afraid of times that are really in God's hand. And now we get to chapter 12, some of the more practical teaching, and this whole notion that the writer uses of a race to suggest we're in a race, we're being watched by, by people who have already run the race, and most specifically we're looking forward to Jesus, who's won the race before us and has set down the pattern, the template as to how we should live. I'm stretching the point just a little bit when I say that the people in chapter 11 from the past are like what we talked about yesterday or this morning. They're, 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 that's the looking backwards of the life to the great tradition of the Christian faith. We are part of generations and generations and generations of men and women who in various ways have suffered for the faith, have advanced the faith, and sometimes in disappointing ways forsaken the faith. So the question then comes alive as we look backwards, what will people someday say of us? Now in the running of the race, you not only know what's behind you, but you have to look forward. For example, the logo for this week or the motto has been staying the course. What if I said to you that tonight what we're doing is talking about setting the course, because you can't stay a course that you haven't set. So let's think tonight about the whole notion of what in a moment I'm going to call intentionality. This morning I tried to make the point that God has built into our minds a wonderful thing called the memory. You can look backwards and you can recall events and people and ideas 
which guide us very, very deeply and powerfully as we reach back into the library of our mind and we tap our memory for lessons learned. Some of you during this day have talked to either Gail or me, and one of the things you reflected is how seriously wounded your memory is. And I predicted that this morning, that some of us are operating out of memories that have a lot of pain in them. And we're going to have to repair that pain. We're going to have to bring it under control. For some of us, it'll control us for the rest of our lives. So the memory is there. It's alive and it's active. It's not passive. It needs to be repaired. But now we look forward. And here's a second great gift that all of us are using all the time, but I wonder if we think about it as a gift. It's the gift of imagination. It's the ability of the brain or the mind to look forward to things which don't exist yet and to pretend that they do. Or to put it another way, in each of our hearts or our minds is a, is a theater. And we can run plays on that theater. Some beautiful plays, sometimes we run plays on that stage that we'd rather not talk to anybody else about. But we imagine events out there. What will I do if she really says yes to that date I want to take her out on Friday night? What would it be like to make the football team? What if I got a full scholarship? What would I do with all that cash? What if, what if, what if? We are constantly thinking into the future. The imagination at work. So God has given to you and to me the ability to look mentally into the future and play games, what if games, if this happened, if this happened, if God did this, if God protected me from that, then these would be the results. And we can think about all that stuff. It's an amazing ability which we all use but rarely think about. So in that imagination, you look back to the Bible, to all the characters in the Older and the New Testament, and you see that they too had imaginations. They were looking forward to things and hearing God speak through it. So tonight, we're really talking about this notion of intentionality. And I want to lay this on you as the second of the, the four points of thinking through the structure of one's Christian life. This morning, I, I took the risk that you would understand the spirit in which I said it when I talked about the fact that advancement in the, in the walk with Christ that we all want to do is not done by just having private little crises moments where for a couple of hours we feel really good or we have a few tears and we make some promises which become unkempt in a short period of time. No, we want a structure to our Christian life so that every day pulls together and, and becomes a marvelous experience of walking with the Lord. Now let me give you an idea of the kind of things I'm talking about, and then we'll talk through the next minutes about what this all means. On the right side of the diagram is this word intentionality. The things I would like to see happen in the future of my life. Someone will say that's a little bit pretentious to be able to do that. I think not. I think the scripture is constantly calling us into the future to ask the question, how does God want to use me and the people that I run with to make a difference in this world? When it comes to Christian faith, I've arrived at the point where I think there are four different things we can think about as things which happen in the future. The first comes under the word conversion. The second under the word convictions. The third, the word call. 
And the fourth is the word competency. These are all things that in the present I can deal with as things that are going to happen in my future. If in the intentional life I want to live, I let God do his work in my life. Let me talk to you about the first one, which I suspect will surprise a few of you in the way that I'm going to put it. I'm not sure that you may have heard some thoughts about conversion as I'm about to present them. I was converted for the first time when I was about three years of age. I gave my heart to Jesus. I confessed all my sins at the age of three. I have no idea how a three-year-old sins, but I confessed it anyway. I think I raised my hand and accepted Jesus about 12 times in my fourth year, 17 times in my fifth year, several times in my teenage years when I was becoming part of the social group at bonfires and things at camp and so on. I told you in one of the earlier sessions that at the age of 20, 21, I was converted again. We use that word converted as a word which describes this decision that a person makes, to put it in one frame of words, to give their hearts and their lives to Jesus Christ. We have this notion, it becomes a, a line in the sand, and in a particular moment, we cross that line. My bet is that a huge percentage of you could stand tonight <coughs> And tell us the story of the day you remember crossing the line in the sand, beginning to become a follower of Christ. For some of us, it would be at a very young age. For others of us, it's just very recent. I've met two or three of you who have become followers of Christ just in the last several days. And that's delightful to know that you're here. I want to suggest to you that conversion really is a bigger idea than just crossing the line in the sand. It begins there. But what if I were to tell you that there is a sense in which almost every day I become converted? You look at me with cross eyes and say, you're not supposed to say that. But I'm going to contend that there is a way and an important sense in which to say that. That on a regular basis, I like to return to the cross and remind myself that Jesus died for me a sinner that my life is a broken life, and that it's in a constant state of repair. I don't want to drift away from the cross. I want to return to the cross, and I want to deal with the issue of the cross at every age in my life. I've discovered, for example, that when I gave my life to Christ at 21, I had no idea really how much I was giving him. Now, many, many years later, I realized that I thought life was this big, but life is this big. If inner space is infinite, as I suggested in an earlier talk, then there's a lot more converting in an experiential way that has to go on day by day by day as things are revealed to me about my life I never knew before. I promise you, if you're 22 years of age today, you will look back on this day about 20 years from now and say, next to what I know now about myself, I knew nothing in those days. It's just something that expands and expands and expands. So I like to give my life or reaffirm that I've given my life to Jesus on a daily basis. I love to go back to the cross and say, Jesus, one more time I'm returning to this cross to refresh myself in the fact that my life is yours, that I'm a follower of you, and that as things become clear to me this day, I will do my best to be faithful to the way you're leading me in my growth and my salvation.
If you want a Bible verse that might substantiate what I'm trying to say, look up Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. There, St. Paul writes to the relatively new group of believers in Philippi, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What's he trying to say there? He's saying, as you become aware of your conversion, always make sure that you're exercising it, enlarging it, expanding it, to become more and more the man or the woman of God that he intends for you to be. Now let me illustrate this. Back in the spring, or actually the winter of 1961, I've told you the story already, you're going to get sick of hearing it, uh, but I was introduced to the woman I married. Gail and I only had a few months to really make sure that we had hammered down uh, in our lives en enough that was compatible and that we shared and it didn't take that long but you do have to go through the process and we set a date it was August 27 1961 on a Sunday afternoon and we walked the aisle and stood before the pastor and he gave to us the vows we said I do I do and then we started up the aisle when we went back up that aisle we were as much married in that moment as we are today. When you sign that marriage certificate, you are saying before the law and before the community, I have committed myself to this person. In legal terms, you're as married in that moment going up the aisle as you will be 55 years later. But you're smart enough to know that's not the whole story. If you saw our wedding pictures, you would see a scrawny kid with a crew cut weighing about 142 pounds, skinny as a rail, escorting a petite, lovely bride going up that aisle, smiles on our face, and you would say to yourself, boy, it looks like fun, but they're just beginning. And we went off on this honeymoon for about eight or nine days. We had $90 in our pocket. And we got back home to the apartment we had rented, and we started life. The honeymoon was great. Couldn't keep our hands off each other. We had a lot of fun. We discovered in the process of unpacking the first day on our honeymoon that with all the gifts that people had given to us, we had nine Bibles on our honeymoon. <laughs> None of them got read. <laughs> it was a wonderful honeymoon. And, and if you it, see all the laughter that's coming, you're thinking about this now, aren't you? On that honeymoon, it seemed like nothing could go wrong. If this is what marriage was meant to be, let it be. It's, one, it's wonderful. Nothing can go wrong until we got home. Suddenly, there were leaky faucets. There were footprints on the carpet. There were unmade beds. One after the other, the tensions began to rise because now you put two people together for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you discover that the Bible is true when it says they're both sinners. Now, Gail was much less the sinner than I was. But uh, nevertheless, and in those first weeks and months of the marriage relationship, lots and lots of things happened that began to bite away at this so-called perfect relationship. And so we learned that when you get married, 
you're not only fully married, as the legal piece of paper says you are, but you have to every day recommit yourself to the dynamism of this relationship in all of its faults and flaws, in all of its entrapments, in all of its challenges. To put two people together is a wonderful thing, but it's also one of the greatest challenges in all human experience. So for 53 years, we have become more and more married every day. To this day, we're learning things about one another we never knew before. Little stories that come out that you never heard before. And they now begin to explain why one of us has been the way we've been over the years. If you want a good marriage, if you want to have a relationship that's going to last for tens and tens and tens of years, you have to work at it every day. That's what Paul means. Work out your own salvation. I not only have given my life to Christ, but I must give more and more of my life to him every day as I come to understand the fullness of what this life is. So conversion is not just some deep event way in the past that I say, well, it happened, I'm glad that's now over. But it's also a present tense experience where each day I come to know more about Jesus and he presents himself to me in more and more ways than I could have ever imagined before. That's why I say to you that every day we begin to expand our conversion. One of the Bible stories that most impresses me along this subject is the story of Abraham. Abraham's conversion to God is a 35-year process. We meet him first in Genesis chapter 12 when he hears a voice, the voice of God, in the homeland where he lives, probably the country of Iraq today. Abraham, I want you to leave the town that you and your family have lived in all of these years. I want you to leave behind your business. I want you to leave behind your friends. I want you to journey toward a land. And by the way, I will tell you when you get to where you're going. There are no maps. There are no road signs. It's just Abraham following the voice of God every day. And it doesn't always go well. And for almost 10 years, we read stories about Abraham almost every store showing some flaw, some empty spot in his life that needs to be touched by the hand of God. And then you get toward chapter 21 of the book of Genesis and you read this, now Abraham has his only son Isaac and God says to him, and the Bible says this, in order to test him, God said, Abraham, take your only son, go up the mountain, lay him on an altar, and give him back to me as a sacrifice. It's a terrible story. There are very few stories in the Bible I would rather not read than this one. To think about a father having to sacrifice his son. But it says very early in the morning, Abraham got up, he saddled his donkey, he took his son Isaac, and up the mountain they went. No hesitation, no arguing, no bargaining. Abraham is 100% obedient. And when he gets to the top, the story gets worse. He builds the altar. He lays his son on the altar. I can't imagine this moment. He raises the ceremonial knife, and suddenly heaven speaks. And it says, Abraham, stop. Now I know you fear God. It took Abraham 35 years to hear those words. 
So in the New Testament, you have the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus, where it seems like, bang, it happens like that, and Paul is a different man. In the Older Testament, you have Abraham, who has to be lifted out of a very pagan, wicked, evil world. And it takes 35 years for all of this stuff to get pressed out of him. And there on the mountaintop, God says, now you have proved the genuineness of your faith. And that's why Paul will say in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, in the New Testament, Abraham is the father of all who believe. He showed us how to do it. So I've come to understand that in my future, this conversion is always in play. God has introduced me into his family. I don't worry about my salvation. I don't worry about this notion that one day when I die, sooner or later, I will be in heaven. That's taken care of. But that doesn't stop me from realizing that every day of my Christian journey, there are more things in my life to clear up, clean up, put back into order. In that sense, I am becoming more and more converted to Jesus on a daily basis. So how dynamic is your conversion? If, if I were to simply lean on the date way, way back there, my conversion would be an old story today. It would not really offer me much inspiration today. It would not be something that was real to me in this day. But knowing that each day there is a sense in which I go back to the cross, that gives me the feeling, that gives me the sense of Jesus is fresh in my life day by day by day. That makes a lot of sense to me. Just in the same way that each day, I like to remarry Gail. I like to think each morning, I want to take this woman afresh and pledge myself to her and love her in a fresh new way. I want our marriage to be as new as if it happened this morning. So with my salvation. Now the second thing I need to be concerned about, and, and I'm going to just give this just one or two minutes because I want to get to number three rather quickly. I not only want to make sure that my conversion is taking me into the future, that it, it is the intentionality of my life each day to live in the shadow of the cross, but secondly, I want to be able to form in my life what I'm going to call tonight convictions. Another word might be core beliefs. If I'm going to walk with Jesus, what do I truly believe are the marks or the signs of a person who has given their life to Jesus. If you decide to become a person who's going to give his whole life to, for example, some area of the financial world, you're probably going to shape your life in such a way that you will be acceptable to a world will, which will bring you inside and give you all the opportunities in that world to have a great career. And your life will show the marks over the year, over the years, of a person who has this kind of career. If you want to be a Christian, then the operational question becomes, what are the marks of a follower of the Lord that will cause other people to recognize that I have intentionalized my life down through the years to be a follower of Christ? What do you think those marks are? They might be slightly different for every one of us in this room, but they provide an exercise that never stops what are your convictions? What are the things that you will not do in life because you believe that they are things God has asked you to stay away from? What are the things you really believe in that you will give yourself to? 
one of the things that comes to mind in the life that Gail and I share is our decision over the years to use a lot of our money in various ways. When I married Gail, I was not sure that I had any convictions about money, just to make enough to live on. And then I get married and I begin to learn that my wife really believes in this tithing stuff. And I remember the first night we got home from our honeymoon and she sat down to write the checks uh, to pay our bills. We had $93 in the bank between us and starvation. So I look over her shoulder as she's writing check number 001, the first check in our married life. And she's making it out to our church. And she's making it out for $9. We only have $93. She makes out the check for $9.30. I said to her, honey, we can't afford to be sending that much money to our church. Maybe someday we can do that, but we can't now. She looks up at me with her angelic look, and she says, do you intend to preach the Bible for the rest of your life? Well, sure I do. Well, what does the Bible say about being generous? It says you start with a tithe. All right, there's the tithe. What do you say to that? It was my first recognition that in our marriage, we had a conviction. And the conviction began with the fact that whenever we earn money, the 10% of it, at the very beginning, and often more than that, would go to the things that we felt the Lord wanted us to give to. That's conviction. We have a conviction about lifestyle, that we don't want to go beyond a, a certain level in the way we use our money, in the kind of cars we buy or the place we live in. We have convictions about that. We have convictions about the way we treat people. These are the marks which God has put upon us as ways that you live the Christian life. So my question to you tonight would be, as you look to the future, as you set your course that this says we're supposed to stay, what are the convictions which will mark the waypoints of the course you're setting? Every one of us ought to be spending time regularly to list and appreciate our convictions and then to ask the question, are we living up to our convictions? Unfortunately, many of us have lived in a church tradition that honors merely saying words. If we've said it, it must be done. God doesn't really give a rip about our words. He looks at actions. And a sound conviction always transfers into an action. So as you open the Bible, as you read the biographies of great men and women of God, as you live in community with other Christian people older and younger than you and peer to you, what are you hearing from all of those sources that begin to help you shape a notion of the kind of man or the kind of woman you ought to be in daily performance in life? We look to the future not only in terms of where our conversion is taking us, but we look to the future in terms of listing the convictions that we will follow as the days go by. And believe me, in every decade of life, there will be some new convictions, and there will be others that become less important. So this life constantly changes as we see things in fresh new ways. Now the third word on the screen is also an important one to me. Sometimes you hear about this more often than not. We don't hear about it. It's the notion that my future 
will be sculpted out, will be shaped by a sense of call. What is a call? Well, if you go to the scripture, you don't get any explicit teaching on the doctrine of call, but you do have a number of stories of women and men who were called by God to certain situations, certain functions, or to exercise certain abilities which the world at that time needed. God calls Moses at the burning bush, and he says, I want you to rescue my people out of Egypt. God calls the young woman Esther, the queen of the king of Persia, to be the messenger to him about the great danger of the Jewish generation of that time. And Esther wrestles with that call, and finally she fulfills it, and the lives of many people are saved. God calls Mary to be the mother of our Lord. God calls the newly converted St. Paul to be the chief number one missionary to the nations in planting the first generation of the church. These are just a few of the stories of people in both the Older and the New Testament whose lives with God begin with a dramatic sense of call, I'll use the word conviction here, of things they ought to do in the service of the Lord. My first call to be whatever I am came the day I came home from the hospital, newly born. My mother and my grandmother, so I'm told, I, I really wasn't conscious this was going on. But my mother and my grandmother, they took each other by the hand and they prayed over me. And when they got through, through praying and giving me to God, my grandmother supposedly said to my mother, you have your preacher, now raise him to be one. And my mother took that very seriously. Two years later, in the middle of the summer, where we were living in, in the New York City area, I was out on the playpen in our backyard. My mother went into the house for a moment. And while she was gone, two military bombers flew over our house and collided. And they rained down all over our neighborhood, all the flaming wreckage, the glass, the, the, the metal, the ammunition. Thirteen men died in the air that day. And all of that stuff came down in our backyard. And when my mother came out of the house, having heard this all going on, and seconds later she comes out, and all she sees is the backyard just littered with the rubbish of two crashed airplanes. And she's sure that I'm gone. And then in the middle of the backyard, she picks out the playpen as the only place in the yard that had not been touched. Are you following what I'm telling you? Because my mother would tell that story now for the next 10 years. And every time she told the story and got to the, the miracle part where my life had been spared, she would turn to me and say, and you are the miracle baby. God has saved your life for a reason. And he, he wants it, you, to use you in special ways. You must not disobey him or he will judge you very harshly. How would you like to hear that from your mother all the time? <laughs> I mean, is that something to hang around your neck when you're a kid or not? But that was the story I was told. And I had to live with that story. Was that my call? Did my call come at a summer camp in my teenage years where some compelling speaker decided that all of us should hear the call of God to be pastors and missionaries, and so we all went obediently up to the fire. We threw our little stick in and dedicated our lives to God. Was that the call? So you see, in my life, there's been any number of occasions 
back about 10 years ago, the editor of the magazine that I write for regularly asked me if I would write a, an article on call. So I, I wrote about this kind of thing, and when I came to the end, I was very restless. And I was restless because I realized that, that in my life, my call to do what I do had happened more than 40 years ago. I didn't think about my call anymore. It was just a dead story way back there. And I asked myself, is that the way God wants it? Shouldn't a call be something that gets you out of bed every morning, excites you, inspires you, directs you, accounts for the way your life is going into the future intentionally? What do I do about a call that's so old it's got a beard on it? And so I began to pray. Lord, do you ever call 64-year-old men with a new call? Because I couldn't ever remember an old guy saying to me, I've got a new call from God. That's always for young people. So every day for many, many weeks, I prayed, Lord, is there a fresh call for somebody my age? A few of you will be interested in this part of the story. I, I went off to Germany to speak at a number of conferences. And at the end of several of these days, some of the younger men and women who were there for the day would come up to ask a few questions. And inevitably, one of them would say to me, when you talked today to us, you talked to us like a father. I'd say, what does that mean? Well, the old German men lecture us. They shout at us. They talk about philosophy and theology. They never open their hearts. They never tell us the important stories of their lives. That's what you've done today. That's what a father does. He tells people about how he has struggled and how God has been faithful to him. That's what we young people need to hear, the voice of a father. Well, I came back to the United States thinking that was a nice thing to hear. Went out to California. That's where we are, aren't we? We're in California. And uh, I spoke at another pastor's conference. And after the two days were over, the person who was the leader of the conference got up to thank me. I'm sitting down here, and I hear him say this. I want to thank Gordon for talking to us for these two days. Many times while he's been talking, I've been on the edge of tears. And I wondered why. It's not because Gordon's that bad a speaker. <laughs> and then he said, I realized I was on the edge of tears because I was hearing the voice of a father. Someone was telling us what life is really like. And I'm sitting here in the front row, and it's like the Holy Spirit says to me, you wanted a fresh call? You want a new call? Listen carefully, you just got it. Be a father. At your age, you're the oldest person in the room. Talk like a father. Be gentle with people. Listen to them. Ask questions. Cheerlead them. Encourage them. That's what a father is supposed to do. That is a great call. For the last 10 years, that call has gotten me out of bed morning after morning. It's what brought Gail and me here to be with all of you. Would you speak to a group of college students? Would you fly 3,000 miles across the country to talk to a university student? Sure I would. Why? Because that's my call. That's my call. And I love doing it. Gail loves to do it. And if I'm a father, she's a mother. And we try to talk like that. 
So my call is up to date with my age. It's real to me. It guides me into the future. As long as I can continue to be a father, I'll keep doing the things that I'm doing. Now that leads us to this question. What's a call to each of you? How is God able to speak into your life and begin to shape a thought, an idea, a possibility? And little bit by little, the notion of a call begins to build in your heart until there will come a day in the future where you will say to yourself, I can do nothing else with my life but this thing which God has pressed into my heart. And when you get there, and when that call becomes that clear, and it may not happen overnight, but when it finally gets to you, you will have the thrill of understanding that unlike a lot of people who don't care about these things, your life is led by a call from heaven with God putting his strong hand upon you. So I intentionalized my life by my conversion and my repeated revisits to the cross. I intentionalize my life by making sure that I'm living by convictions which the Spirit of the Lord has pressed upon me. I intentionalize my life when I become aware that day by day, year by year, I'm living according to a call that God has given to me. Is it a call to preach the gospel? Is it a call to heal people? Is it a call to counsel people? Is it a call to be a teacher? Is it a call to be a person in business, in research, in science? How does God call each of you and then say, now that I've got you where I want you, I want you to be a representative of Jesus in that little world? There's one more word. And it's the word competency. Because the scriptures also teach that when God calls me to some kind of function, he also equips me to do that thing he's called me to. Simon Peter will write in the book of 1 Peter that everyone who's in the Lord is given gifts. Some people have one gift, two gifts, others have a multiple of gifts. But each of us, the Bible teaches, has certain capacities. They're listed in 1 Corinthians 12. They're listed in Romans 12 and one or two other places. All the different competencies which the Holy Spirit gives to men and women who are followers of the Lord. Moses was a competent person as a leader. He seemed to understand how you lead people for years and years and years who have had no training in their background, who are totally lawless, but Moses becomes the strong leader over a 40-year preparation period, and God makes a leader out of him. Nehemiah becomes a person who can bring people to the walls of Jerusalem which were broken and show them how to rebuild it. Over and over again, these people come out of the pages of Scripture with their competencies. So I need to ask myself the question, what is the Spirit of God gifting me to do? As the years rolled by early in our life, the gifting that I realized in my experience was the gift of being a pastor. Somehow, when I'm able to sit with people, God gives me an ability to drill into the depths of their souls with questions, with comments, and they begin to feel heard, and they begin to listen. And I'm able, and sometimes 
I must confess to you, please don't take this in the wrong way, I'm surprised by what I'm able to do. But it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It comes out of the call. It's a competency which the Lord blesses me with. If I tried to be the president of a great organization, I would be a dismal failure. I'm not called to lead business organizations. Some of you are. I'm not called to do research in a scientific lab. Some of you are. I'm not called to be a politician. Some of you are. But one of the most important exercises you can go through as the days, the months, and the years of your life pass is always to be going back, what are the particular gifts that God has given to me? Now, just a word or two before we finish this all up. How, how can I become aware of those gifts? Well, one thing will be that every time I do certain things, my heart burns to do them again and again. I discover that when I do those things, there's almost an unnatural or supernatural ability to do those kind of things. Thirdly, I, I begin to appreciate any sense of, of call and giftedness because the people around me note it in me. They say, when you do that very thing over and over again, we all sense the life of God in you. It's like in that one area of life, you can do this better than anybody else can do it, and we respond whenever you do those kind of things. Finally, I know what my gifts are because most gifts result in the changing of people's lives. They respond when the Holy Spirit works through me in the area of my competency or my giftedness. And wonderful things happen. You can take it from the two oldest people in the room. We have lived most of our lives in response to the giftedness that we've sensed that God has built into our lives. And the joy that comes when God's giftedness is working through you is something beyond explanation. So this morning we look backwards. We ask, what's in the memory? What needs to be repaired? What needs to be thanked for? How do we use it to become wise people? Tonight we've looked into the future. Where is my conversion taking me? What kind of a person is it making out of me? What are my convictions? What's my call? What's my competency? Now we're beginning to get a platform for the exercise of our faith in Jesus Christ. These are the areas that Jesus is really interested in as he makes us more and more into the kind of people he wants us to be. What do you do with all this? Think about it. Pray about it. Write about it. Talk about it with your close friends, with your mentors. Begin to get other people's perspectives on how this works for them and how it works for you. And I promise you, God will touch you in ways that you never imagined possible. And now for the next few minutes, I want to invite Gail to come up with me and just let us talk between the two of us for these moments about what she's hearing and how this might become more applicable to us all. Sweetheart, you want to come up for a minute? Hmm? Right there. You got it? Sort of. Thank you for listening. I'm used to listening to you, honey. <laughs> 
Well, you listen to all that. What are you hearing? Well, I, I, one of the things that I think is important for us to remember is that when you have small groups in your, that you came here with or that you are fellowshipping with in your schools, that you should be looking for spiritual gifts for each other. Uh, sometimes we forget that other people don't know what gifts they have. And we ought to be gift lookers. We ought to be searching that out with each other. Talk about some of the groups we've had in our home. Well, we've had uh, probably a little over 150 people over these last few years at 12, at 12 people at a time. And we have them stay for three hours every Monday night. They are expected to be with us. And we go through some very exciting um, searches of their and discoveries in their lives. And we get to be uh, kind of um, eavesdropping on what the Holy Spirit is doing in the area of gifts. Doing that is tremendously important, especially if you come out of a home where your parents were either not Christ followers or they didn't understand how to help you develop your spiritual life. Oh boy, you took that in a direction I wasn't expecting. Enlarge upon that, because I suspect there are more than a few people here who can relate to this. Well, if those things are true, then who else do we have but the, the fellowship of people that we have and as collegians. Because home was not a safe place. Safe place or where there wasn't, it was ignorant. There was ignorance just because they didn't know what, what was available. They didn't have their own gifts discovered because they didn't know Jesus. They're given to us after we begin to know him. But uh, how many times I have had this experience where I thought someone understood her gifts and then I begin to see that she's flagging a bit in knowing them. And I will ask her, tell me what you think your primary gifts are and what are your, your supportive gifts? <coughs> because she's so competent. Well, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'm really doing very much anymore in my gifted areas. And I get her talking about it. And we need to ask questions of each other so that those those things don't stagnate because they are what make our Christian life move and exciting. Um, I think of, I've talked to you before about people like Molly, who she's one of the most effervescent women going. And someone told me one day, Molly is the best Sunday school teacher. My son can't wait to get to Sunday school. Well. I thought, good, I always am looking for tidbits about how a gift is experienced. I went to Molly and I said, you know, the lady told me that her little boy in fourth grade, whatever, can't wait to get to Sunday school. And she began to weep. I said, Molly, this is supposed to be a happy moment. I'm telling you, you're doing something great. <laughs> she said, you know, Gail, I was getting ready to quit because I just didn't think I was getting through to those kids. Sometimes those closest to us, we've been missing where they need the affirmation and the encouragement, and that we can do that best with each other. Well, two things come to my mind as I'm listening to you. We didn't really complete the story of the people in our home, but year after year, after about 35 weeks, 
we would have an evening where these 12 to 15 yeah. people mm -hmm. would sit in a circle mm -hmm. and we would take turns. Each person became the target for a few minutes of the comments of all the other people. And the question was, what gifts do you see in Bob? What gifts do you see in, in Joan or whoever it was? And it was an incredible thing to watch 13, 14 people identify what they saw in this one person as the work of the Holy Spirit. And more often than not, people would weep. They were surprised. Amazed, yeah. And because we would follow it up with, this is when I see this gift. And we would go back and we would, because we spent so much time together. And that's the key. It's, you've got to spend enough time that you know where the gift of the Spirit is in each other. The other thing is, is kind of a warning, that sometimes when you put people together who are all of the same age, this is very important. When you put people together the same age, they don't see the importance of affirming each other in these areas. Uh, in fact, it may be that we belittle each other, we kid each other, uh, and, and we find within our friends that everybody treats us as an ordinary person. And there's no one who steps forward and says, you know, I've been watching you, and every time our group hits the wall at a certain area, you're the one who springs into action and brings us all back to the center point. And th that's a challenge for college kids. And you may remember when we first met, I used to say to you, you're the first person who has ever come along in my, in my bevy of friendships to tell me that you think there's something special in our future. And that was one of the first reasons I began to love you so much, because you were the first person in my age group that really believed in me. And that's very important that if you're going to call yourself a group of Christians, then you believe in one another and you take the responsibility to tease out of each other the things that God is putting there. It's a building process. And we help each other get rooted. And then we build in each other by telling each other where the life of God is. Let's drop that for a moment. Take, a, take a, any, any other shot. What was said tonight that in any other way seems to be significant and needs to be underlined? Well, I would hope that, that these men and women are, are looking for their call and that, that they are, again, helping other people say, do you know there may be a call on your life here? These are all areas where we help each other. We're not lone wolves. And we have to keep ourselves attuned to what the Spirit is saying about our friends. And, um, oh, Jingles, I remember that you didn't think it... <laughs> that you had a, um, you weren't sure that God was going to use you as a preacher. And you remember that first time that I heard you preach? Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, we need to finish on oh, this. Oh, yeah. We finish here, folks. We, we, and you can go to bed. We've been dating for about eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And one night I get an invitation to come to a church and preach on a Wednesday night. And you come, and just like as you've done tonight, you're sitting on the front row. I'm 23 years of age. I've probably preached about five times in my life. 40 people, record attendance. And so I preach. And when the evening is over and people walk out the door and you and I are the only ones left in the room, I'll never forget this moment. You came toward me and you put your arms around me and you kissed me. And you said into my ear, God has given to me a vision tonight of the kind of preacher he's making you into. That kiss in those words made me a preacher. No one had ever said that kind of thing to me before. No one had ever believed 
in, in the possibility that God might be forming a preacher in this person. And you were the one who saw it. And by saying what you did, especially the kiss, uh, let's, just, let's just say that after that kiss, I felt heavens opening up. But you know that I have said to you. Let's just say that she, she has the gift of kissing. Go ahead. What were you going to say? We better quit. That's what I'm going to say. Um, did that kind of throw well, you off target? Yes, it did. did. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Yeah. But I'm serious now, and don't make me laugh, because I'm trying to be serious. <laughs> I did have an experience with the Spirit that night as I listened to you, and this is what was said. I'm going to use this man, know when to come close and when to back off. And that's been a life rule for me. How do you know when a person needs your voice and when you need to be still and let me lead them? And again, it, it's because many of us, and you were one of them, who grew up in a home where you were not affirmed, except when you were a little boy and you <coughs> kept getting yourself near death things all the time. <laughs> and then your mother kept telling you you had a future. But beyond that, you know, this kind of thing has to be done by people who are observing. Are we so afraid that we, uh, someone else might be do something better than we that we can't affirm what God is doing in them? So, amen and amen, let's go. Thank you. Thank you for being up here. Bless you. Let's, uh, let's, let's say a prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God tonight. We thank you for the people who populate the scripture and teach us by their very actions what it means to walk by faith, to hear your voice, to be obedient, to be people who are agents of great change in their time. We'd love to believe tonight, Lord, that you're raising up out of this group of people men and women who are going to make similar differences in the name of Jesus wherever they go. May this be so, and may there be joy in it, not a, a sense of being uh, ought, I have to do this, but I am privileged to do these things. We love the fact that you have us in the middle of your will, and may this, the rest of this evening be a joy to you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. <laughs>